Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. And now we come to our scripture reading this morning. Today's text comes from several places in the book of Proverbs. We're going to put the verses on the screen for you to follow along. Our first verse is Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Our second verse is Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Our third verse is Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And our final verse is Proverbs 11:26. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Uh, Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge first of all that it's a privilege to be able to gather as a body. Um, And I thank you, Lord, for uh, the brothers and sisters that call this place home, and I thank you for those that visit, um, that are interested, or that are wrestling in some way. And I pray and I ask, Father, that we can be hospitable and helpful to them. And uh, we want to acknowledge that while we sit in safety and comfort, there are those um, who are not, and our world is in, in many places is burning. And uh, so we pray against the violence, we pray against uh, the racism, we pray against the evil that is taking place in our country and and, and, and other places in the world. And it just seems to be mounting up and stacking up. It's a bit overwhelming to me, I admit. Um, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do. I just know to pray. I know um, to beg and plead for your return, to bring your justice and to bring your mercy. to do a work here. Uh, so, so keep us from evil, and we pray against the evil in other places. And be with us this morning as we finish up our service, and we read and listen to your word, and may we have ears to hear and hearts that are open to that. And so we thank you, and we praise your good name. And all God's people said, Amen. I hope uh, to, today, we're still in our Proverbs series, obviously, and we're, we're talking work today. I hope you had a good week of working, and I do mean that for everyone, that I hope you had everyone here, no matter your station or position in life, I hope you had a great week of work. Did you have a great week at work? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, I do mean that for everybody. I, everybody worked this week, so I don't care if, you were reti- if you're retired, I don't care if you're a student. Uh, caregiver, stay home parent, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever situation you find yourself in, you worked this week. Uh, now you maybe run vacation, um, but 
or maybe you were laid up in some way, uh, but my guess is if you were laid up all week, not working, you were probably sick, and um, you weren't happy about that, and you're trying to heal. Everybody works. Not everybody has a great grip on work. That should be a hearty amen from all of us. Um, some people hate work, or they, they feel like when they go to work, or they get busy at work, whether that's down the hall, or get going into the office, or the shop, or the plant, whatever it is that you do. Some people have to feel like they sleepwalk through work. It's just a necessary evil to grind out until you know the clock hits go time. Um, some people have a hard time doing anything else, and I've seen it all. I've, I've, and I've been a part of it all. I, I, I've seen people that just seem to not want to leave the office, and um, I am... I've seen people that look like they're miserable in the office. And when I think of work, what comes to my mind, and I have been thinking about work for a while now as I've been prepping for this, and I've learned a lot in reading the Proverbs on work, I think how often people feel stuck in anti-work and overwork patterns. You can probably find yourself in one of those. In other words, um, work tends to have these kind of ditches on either side. Uh, you can be a work worshiper, and you can be a work avoider. And if I ask um, someone whether they view themselves as a success or failure, I assume that their mind always goes to their work. Why is that? Well, that's because work, typically, regardless of whether it's paid or not, is our preferred, preferred religion for self-justification. It is our most normal and uh, most ordinary and common and our most preferred uh, means, socially accepted means of feeling enough. So work is one of these things that we often look to to find out or to feel or to express our sense of enoughness. And it's probably why most people never see themselves as the work avoider. I rarely have someone, just once, it would be funny for me to have someone come up to me and say, you know, I just do everything I can to avoid work. I never hear that. Um, and to be fair, when I say um, avoider, like a work avoider, and maybe you, you think no one in here is thinking of themselves that way. I'm, what I'm really talking about is about someone who it's not so much that they never work. I mean, functionally, they just push through it with their sights wholly on the weekend. Um, and some worship, you know, and like I said, they find their identity all in it. And I've been at both stages at various places in my life. When I was a kid, one of my first paid jobs was working down, just down the street, um, Stefano's Italian Cafe, you may remember that place? It's now Bandanas. I know the Middletown folks will remember that. I went in there as a kid, as a teenager, and got a job. I, was, I started off in dishes, because that's what you do. Start off in dishes, and I did such a great job <laughs> that I got promoted. And so I got promoted, and I still remember I got promoted to be the pizza and the calzone guy. And um, I, at the time, uh, a guy by the name of Tommy was the head chef there, and um, I can still kind of remember he had been, um, he was very skilled at what he did. He had been to culinary school, and I was just a teenager who just learned to drive. And I can still very much remember the rigorous training that he put me under to get those calzones right. 
he had this very elaborate way uh, of making and wrapping the calzones. I always felt like when I was doing it, I was kind of wrapping a diaper around a pizza baby. It was just this very elaborate process, and I had to get it just right. And when I didn't get it just right, Tommy came undone, and he would dress me down. He would scream, curse me. He would throw things. It was a very volatile environment. I was scared to death of Tommy. <laughs> and I would think, in my teenage brain, what I used to think is, man, dude, this is a stupid calzone. Nobody cares. <laughs> but for Tommy, it was a piece of art. It mattered a lot to Tommy. You know, the rage was not good. When I think back on it now, Tommy didn't need to dress me down over every little mistake that I made. Um, he had passion, though, and that's a good thing. And to be fair to Tommy, I'm sure I was a bit of a pain. You know, I wanted to be anywhere except there at that time, right? I was just there for the paycheck. And I was counting the minutes until I could go home. Looking back now on the whole thing, the whole affair of it, I was belittling the work of food prep and all of that in cooking. I was belittling the work in the kitchen. And at the same time, his identity was too wrapped up in it. We were both struggling to show up and work right, both of us. And to be honest with you, I still struggle. Today, like I still have struggling in my approach to work. My guess is I'm not alone. My guess is all of you, again, wherever you find yourself at right now in life, you struggle in some way with work. We struggle picking jobs. We struggle quitting jobs. We, we struggle uh, retiring. We struggle rushing, rushing to a retirement. We struggle saying yes too much. We struggle saying no too much. Do you find yourself in any of those kinds of patterns? The struggle makes sense from the Bible's perspective. Work existed at the beginning of the story, of the human story. It's addressed in the opening paragraphs of the Bible. You probably are familiar with it. It's addressed in chapter 1. It's addressed in chapter 2. Here's what it says in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We were given work at the very beginning. Work was, work was God's way of expressing love, not only creating us in his image as a worker, but also creating us to partner with him in taking care of creation. We were called to create things, to cultivate things, to, to keep things, to have dominion, to nurture things. And so what I'm just trying to simply say is when you look back at the very beginning of the human story, work was not a form of punishment. It was a form of partnership with God. It was a really good thing. An amazing thing. And Psalm 8 talks about that. It praises God for his goodness. And the psalmist, the poet who's writing Psalm 8, will talk about how he is shocked that God is mindful of us, that he pays attention to us, and that he made us a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, but he gave us dominion over all of this. This is crazy. We have dominion and governance over this creation. It's wild that we have that, and God wanted us to have that. And so I'm just simply trying to say that um, you know, work was not forced upon us as slavery from some capricious kind of God. Rather, work is a part of our normal functioning. It's like air. It's like water. You need those things to survive. You need work. Work is a good thing. Working conscientiously with heart and creativity is what it means to be human, not an animal, and not a machine either. 
But of course, as you all know, and you, what you've experienced probably to some degree this week is the goodness of work is kind of in a headlock. <laughs> That's how I like to look at it. We got restless in the beginning of the story. We didn't trust our position or our place as human beings under God's care and a trusting relationship with Him. We doubted we wanted more than what we had, but the more that we wanted wasn't truly human, and we got ourselves in a real pickle. And we messed up work. We sinned, we failed, we turned from God, and then it plunged us into this situation where work now has thorns. You know, it has frustrations, it has setbacks, it has confusions. Think Sisyphus, right? The Greek god Sisyphus, the myth of Greek... Uh, the Greek god Sisyphus, who cheats death, I think, twice, and he's punished by Hades to an eternal life of pushing a boulder up a hill only to have the boulder fall back down and repeat over and over and over again. Maybe your job or your work feels Sisyphean-like. So the story of work was made good in the beginning. It is still good, but it is in a headlock and a figure of speech. It's got its frustrations. It's got its confusions. Because of all of this, I think we end up with bad instincts. Bad instincts in terms of how we work and how we show up. I need help with how I work. My guess is a lot of you need help with how you work. And the Proverbs helps us. They say a lot about work they tend to actually say more about the sluggard, the lazy person, as a, as a form of contrast. So let's talk about work because there, there is overlap. So the first lesson this morning is just simply this. I just want us to consider the way in which we work. And I tried, what I tried to do is I tried to just summarize for us, kind of like here's what the Proverbs are saying about how you should work, the way in which you should work. And there's three key takeaways for you. Three key, three key takeaways in the way that we should work diligently, Lovingly, discerningly, all right? <coughs> Diligently, lovingly, discerningly. Diligently. Uh, this is Proverbs 13.4 is one example. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Diligent there, that word diligent just simply means earnestly, with effort, with heart. Look, I'm, this, is, this, this part of this is not complicated. You should work hard. That's a Christian idea. <laughs> you should work very hard and what you do, whatever you find yourself doing. This is like Colossians 3, Paul will say, whatever your hand finds to do, work heartily, <laughs> work diligently. The Proverbs are saying that the pattern of the world is that your soul will be richly supplied to flourish if you actually put in some hard work. You know, it's not just to get paid really well. This is actually like you will do better as a human being. And I get that this might be easier for some than others. I want to admit that, right? We all aren't in a role right now, a job, whether that be paid or volunteer-based, whatever it is. We're not all in a place right now where we're just like so energized by what we do. So this can be really difficult. But the Bible's really clear. Hard, careful work doesn't just lead to a better life. It's far more reflective of the God whose image you bear. He is a hard worker. The pastor, the late pastor Eugene Peterson writes about a story of a man. I love this story. He knew this man in his church. He was the groundskeeper at the time, but he had a former career in cabinet making. And he came across the man one day, and he asked the man to build him to throw together, quote, a toy box for his kids. The man presented him a couple weeks later with a carefully designed work of craftsmanship. 
Eugene said he expected a box and he got a piece of furniture instead. Peterson writes this, quote, I was embarrassed because what I thought would be done in an off hour had taken many hours of work. I expressed my embarrassment. I laced my gratitude with apologies and his wife reproached me. But you must understand that Gus is a cabinet maker. He could never, as you say, throw a box together. His pride would not permit it. And then he goes on to say, that toy box has been in our family for over 50 years now and rebukes me whenever I am tempted to do hasty or shoddy work of any kind. I'm not here to rebuke you about the way in which you work this week or last week or the week before. I'm just simply here to point out and lay it before you to say that the Bible is really clear. Third-rate work isn't the calling for the Christian. Caring about the quality of your sales, caring about the quality of your teaching, your cleaning, your diaper wrapping, your art, I don't know, all the different little things that you do, caring about the quality of it, the community service, whatever you do, it isn't just Christian, it's the human design to care about that. Lazy, bitter, vengeful work that lacks heart actually reduces you as a person. It diminishes you. Two, Loving work. So it's not just diligent work, it's also loving work. Proverbs 11 verse 26 says that the people curse him who holds back grain. So you can imagine someone who's able, who has access to a lot of grain and is thinks, I can make more profit here. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. There are plenty of ways to work extremely hard and diligently but do so in a way that generates a hefty profit, but in the process of doing so, people are hurt or exploited in the process. Maybe you've had a boss in your lifetime that does that. Works very hard, doesn't treat people very well. Or maybe, I don't know, it's a crazy idea, but maybe you've been that boss. I don't know. It could be a customer, it could be the employees that you work alongside. The Proverbs are trying to say that while you may be free, given your privilege or whatever your situation is, while you might be free to choose what you want to do with your work, you are not free from moral responsibility towards others. You're not free from that. Wise work will keep a careful eye on our neighbors, our community, right? maybe our world if you have a kind of global impact in some way. And you'll be asking yourself all the time, is this service making people's lives better? And am I contributing? My little piece of this, is it contributing to people's flourishing? Or is it doing the opposite? Is it dehumanizing people in some way? Is it degrading the earth in some way? Uh, the writer, uh, Wendell Berry, in a collection of essays, writes, we have lived our lives by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. We have had it wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. 
And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and learn what is good for it. The wise worker will ask, who benefits from this work that I do? That's what the wise worker does. Who is benefiting? Is it only me? Am I the only one that benefits from this? These are the kind of questions that the wise person asks. The wise person will ask, does this dehumanize someone? Does this degrade something? The wise person will recognize that their joy is bound up in much more than just their paycheck, but in the people around them and how they're affected. And they'll, they'll factor that into their decision-making and the way in which they work. And that goes for all people, whether you're paid or not, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a manager, even whether you're a garbage collector. Is this good for people? Thirdly, discerningly, I'm not trying to spend all day on these because I actually want to get to the real meat here in a second. Discerningly, Proverbs 22 through 29, 29 says this, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. But I want to pair it with Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. When you put them together, what's the picture you get? And see, this is how Proverbs works, and this is why it's difficult sometimes for us to read them. Because you can't just get the whole piece of the wisdom by looking at one. You have to look at many to draw out the full picture. When you put them together, you get a fuller picture of what wise discernment in, your, in the realm of work looks like. You see, verse 29 is saying, choose work around your unique gifts and talents. Please, for goodness sakes, don't choose work that you're just going to stink at. You know what I mean? Um, I work from my home like one, maybe two days a week to, uh, yeah, to like study, to write, those sorts of things. And my wife took a new job a couple years ago. Now she works at home. And we only have one room that where you can be in. I thought I was going to have an office to myself at my house, but that changed. And so now my wife's desk literally is looking at me. And so there she is. She's a, she's an, she's a school counselor for an online school. And um, so she's, she's bebopping on her computer, staring right at me. Um, and I watch, I, I get the, the beautiful privilege of listening to her work, uh, being an online guidance counselor. Um, and I think I could never do that work. I mean, I am not designed for that work. She is perfectly designed for that work. It would not be good for me to pick that work. Um, so Proverbs 22, verse 29 is saying, choose work, if you can, around your unique gifts. Success will generally come the more you find alignment with your personality and your particular callings. But then you have verses 4 and 5 of chapter 23, and it's saying this, essentially. But don't let riches pollute your decision-making. So now you've got this thing of like, choose, choose a, a line of work in which you can be uniquely gifted at doing because you'll probably find that you'll be successful given enough time. However, don't just stare at the paycheck. That's a fool's game. It's got, it's got wings like an eagle. It'll keep flying away on you. You'll keep chasing the dollar. And so you have to keep them together. And this is why it's a, a wisdom issue, you see? Wisdom's not black and white. It's like, oh, it's this, it's this. Like, I gotta, I gotta factor all these variables in. 
So there's a fine line between what is necessary, what is a necessary compromise for provision. It's good to take care of you and your family, for instance. So there's a fine line between what is a necessary, uh, you know, compromise, if you will, in terms of provision for people, while at the same time over here, you've just got selfish ambition and greed. It's a very fine line between them. So the more money is driving your decisions, the more tempted you are to make compromises on what you're actually gifted at. I've seen many a people, many a people that take jobs for the money, and it's like, man, you are not wired for that. And things go badly. Now, after all I've said, there's something critical to remember, and this is really what I want to get to. That, I, While I think it's important for us to spend time thinking about, okay, be a diligent worker. Um, be, a, be a loving worker. Think about who this affects. Be a discerning worker. Like, you know, what am I doing? What am I putting my hands to? Is this good? Like, am I, do I have this? Am I listening to people and what they say about me? Am I actually, like bringing all that in and factoring in my decision-making. After all I've said, though, on that piece of it, there's something critical to remember, and, and, and this has been weighing on my heart for some time. This way of working, this way that the Bible is promoting and saying that this is, this is good human work here, man. Work hard. Think about who it affects. Think about the particular unique set of gifts and skills that God gave you. And use them to serve people. If you're going to do that, if you're actually going to think about doing that, here's what I'm convinced of. It's going to 100% require you to trust God. It's going to at some point put you in a position where you have to trust Him. Diligent work, loving work, and that's our second lesson here. Diligent work, loving work, discerning work is divinely inspired work. That's the kind of work that God is assigning to you. We Christians call that a calling. We're called to something. That's not just for ministers. Man, don't do that. Like, that. everyone has particular callings on their life. And operating in calling is very different than being driven. Our culture tends to praise people who are driven. Now bear with me for a second, because I want to challenge it. And I want to push back on it. And the hardworking hard people in the room are going to feel like I'm kicking their sacred cow. Because they're like, wait, I thought being driven was a good thing. We need more driven people in the world. No, we don't. They're dangerous and they get discouraged a lot. Driven people hurt people, <laughs> including themselves. Being called is very different than being driven. Driven people are all about their own ideas their own visions, their own godlike idea of how the world should work and how they fit into it. Called people are people that say, I'm not God. <laughs> I think I've been assigned a task, and I'm going to try to figure out how to do that task well. Driven means you're so committed to your ideas and your plans that you lack the mental and emotional capacity to receive truth outside of yourself to be flexible, and perhaps reimagine how your working life is meant to go. That can be true if you are young and just starting out. And this can be true, I think, if you, as you navigate retirement, you know? Talk to many people that have said, this is 
not where I thought I'd be when I retired. Yeah, I, things don't always go to according to plan. But called people recognize that. You can be driven by the kind of school that you thought you'd attend. You can be driven by the kind of career that you thought you'd have. You can be driven by the vision of retirement that you thought you were going to have. And I'm not saying that goals are not good, so don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that. Set goals for yourself. Set a goal and try to reach it. I'm just simply saying, keep a humble grip on the goal. Remember your own humanity. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What's that saying to you? It's saying called people recognize that their original ideas don't always match up with God's ideas. That's what called people do. And so while it may take time, and it even can be risky or painful, they allow their working stories to be reshaped over Sorry, time. could you say that again? Sure. <laughs> Stupid Siri. To allow your working story to be reshaped is going to require you to trust God. That's the point I'm trying to make. Trusting God in our working decisions may at times require a lot of hard-nosed, hard-nosed self-evaluation and you spending time to sit down and rethink and reevaluate your self-concept. Let me say it again. Sometimes in life you're going to hit moments where if you're actually going to operate in this and what I'm saying, you're going to have to re-evaluate your self-concept. And you have a self-concept. You have an idea of who you think you're supposed to be. You have an idea of the kind of husband, the kind of wife, the kind of mom, the kind of dad, the kind of teacher, the kind of plumber, the kind of whatever you are. You have a life vision, a life concept that you think you're supposed to have and it's supposed to look like this. And at some point, friends, if you are Christian, I promise you this, you're going to be wrong somewhere about that concept. God's going to mess with it. And the question will be, are you willing to reevaluate it? Are you going to be someone who's willing to say, yeah, maybe I didn't have a perfectly clear, accurate vision of who I'm supposed to be, the kind of job that I was supposed to take, or whatever. Sometimes we just don't really know how driven and compulsively tied we are to our self-concept until God allows, God allows circumstances, trials, mistakes from us, setbacks, or even unforeseen opportunities to enter into our life that really shake up our situation and maybe even disturb us. Here's what I want to encourage you in. If this happens to you, when this happens to you, when you're put in a position when you're thinking about hard work, loving work, discerning work, and you're thinking about these things, and you recognize, I don't know what to do here. I think God's pulling me here, but this feels risky. I feel like this is a trust issue. Here's what I want to say is this. If you're in a position where you're having to evaluate your your self-concept, 
please, please, please hear me. Allow yourself to tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth about what you're feeling. Tell the truth about where the misalignment or whatever it is is hitting you. Open up to God and maybe a trusting friend, but most importantly to God about how your self-concept is being challenged. Be willing to tell the truth about how God's callings of work on your life in whatever form it is, be willing to tell the truth on how it's not meeting up with your long-held vision. We don't like to admit that sometimes. You know? We don't like admitting, yeah, you know what? I really wanted to do this and it hasn't worked out for me. And I feel like a failure. Or you know what? I was always told this as a kid and I'm coming to find out that everybody was wrong. You know what? I always thought I was going to be a parent, but that's just not reality right now for me, and um, I'm angry about it. Or whatever it is. I thought I was going to have a kind of job or a kind of position where I was going to have this really interesting, cool title, and I was going to be the life of the party when I talked about it, and as it turns out, I'm a little bit embarrassed by my title. Does any of this connect with any of you? Or is it just me? <laughs> Is it just me that thinks that this is actually what's going on inside of people's heads? It's just why people get very uncomfortable when we start talking about what it is that you do for a living. Well, I, I, I uh, you know. And then all the like manufactured new narrative starts to come out. Be someone who can tell the truth and how it's not lining up. Be able to tell that you're frustrated, you're angry, you're disappointed, you feel humiliated, whatever those things are. To find out that your initial first draft of your self-concept was based on wrong assumptions or maybe even selfish ambition is not, in fact, just a you problem. It is a we problem. This is what it means to be human-sized and not God-sized, which, of course, is what we all are. No one has a first draft that's perfect. No one. No one. So the fact that your first draft has been wrong is common. There's a lot of solidarity in this. We all experience realities that aren't fitting our original plan. You know, we all are going to have a job that didn't go according to plan. We're all, we're all going to have a kid that it's like, oh. we're all going to have something. We're going to have a part of our body, an aspect of, it's not, it's not working right. This is not going according to my plan. We're all going to have something. We all experience these realities. The difference is some of us will be truthful about the struggle, the disappointment, the fear, the anger, and realize that we need divine help, that we need compassion. But here's the amazing thing about God, is that you can trust God enough to tell the truth. You can tell the truth about how you actually feel about your situation, no matter how ugly or sacrilegious it sounds. Let me say it again. You can trust God enough to be truthful about how you actually feel about your working situation, your life concept, your self-concept. 
You can tell the truth no matter how ugly or sacrilegious it sounds because whenever you open yourselves up to tell the truth, guess what happens? You open yourself up to grace. And so long as you pretend and you're not honest and you're not actually truthful, grace will not break into you, friend. But if you are honest and it's ugly and it's embarrassing and whatever else comes with it, and you say it out loud, and you start to be honest about yourself and the way you feel towards life or towards God or whatever it is, it is the precise moment grace begins to operate in your life. That is the pattern of the universe that God made. Every time, anytime you catch yourself willing to stop and question your ambitions, to question your selfishness, to question your own image protection anytime you stop and feel this tug that maybe you've been pretending and you need to rethink who you are and that includes the work that you do. Anytime those moments hit you, church, that is grace moving in you. That's grace. That's the work of grace. Grace is not just comfort. Grace very often is disruption. That this isn't working out. I feel like a, a phony. I don't even know if I believe this anymore. I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. What will that mean for me? What will people say about me? How will I look? I'm so afraid. But those things, that's grace. It's grace that always wants you to be honest. Because when you do that, when you get honest, God always meets you at the bottom, even if everybody else leaves. That's where he meets you. Every time. It's grace that disrupts our drivenness. It's grace that disrupts our apathy. It's grace that, it, that interrupts our anger and says, why are you so angry? It's grace that causes us to say that I don't know, I don't know what to do here. It's, it's, it's grace that says, that causes us to say, I, I, you know what, I think I need help. It's grace that comes in and makes me start to realize, you know what, I need saved from my selfish habits and my selfish ambition. I can't do this on my own. It's grace that will meet you when you choose honesty and love over prideful control or like laziness or revenge, or spite. And so I would just say this as we close this morning. Trust this grace even when your boss or your kids or your social circles don't get it. Even if they don't get it, trust this grace. And the reason why is because it's, it's always Jesus. He's the one that's offering and giving you that grace. It's, it's coming from him. He's always the one meeting you when you get honest. When you throw up your hands. Jesus is the one you belong to. Jesus is the one who put the thorns of work, whatever those thorns are for you right now, Jesus is the one that took those thorns, put those on his head, and he bled. He bled for what frustrates you. He bled for what feels unjust 
to you. He bled for every bit of that. He is the one who offered that profound work of saving you from death. Jesus is the one who says, I gave you your unique set of gifts, even if other people don't get it. I gave those to you for my glory, for the good of other people. Trust me. Trust me in that. Give yourself to that work. Therefore, when no one else sees you operating in that trust, even if people don't see it, and you feel like success in the worldly terms isn't coming, friends, you always got to remember, he sees it. He does know. Let me just, let me just read to you Revelation 14, 13. The end of the story is looking out ahead of what's going to come someday. And here's what it says. Blessed are the dead. That will be me, and that will be you. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. What this is saying is that your good works that are in love and in trust with Him, no matter what they are, even if no one notices, get resurrected and live on forever. There is not a single good work that you do that is not seen and remembered for all of eternity because of Jesus. Nothing is in vain. None of it. And so I ask you to remember that and give yourself to that little by little. We all need to recognize what is it about my self-concept, my working concept, my working life that needs to say, hey, like I, I'm wrestling with it. I need to reevaluate it. I need to, to, to trust his ways over my ways. If you're a Christian, you're invited to come forward to this table or this table. There's a gluten-free station over here and participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. This bread points us to and reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken. And this cup of wine uh, represents and points us to his blood that was shed for us. We have juice and wine both up here, whichever your conscience permits. If Jesus is Lord to you, you're invited to come forward. If you have questions this morning, if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, if you've got questions about Christianity or any of these things that I've said, there's always pastors in the prayer room over here at this moment. Uh, we'll be over there and we'll be able to pray with you. So we will encourage you to do that. We also still pray on Wednesday mornings as well if you want to participate in that. Um, it's always good for us to wrestle and be honest in prayer. And so we're all invited to do that. Take the time that you need and then come up when you are ready. And let us pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your good words, uh, your words on work and how we need to wrestle with it. And I pray I need help. And I need your grace. And we all do. And so give us the grace this week to admit where we're struggling, to admit where, where we don't know where to go, we don't know what job to take, we don't know what job to turn down, we don't know where to volunteer, we don't know exactly always what the best course of action is, and so we need your spirit to guide us. Help us to do that. And no matter what we decide today and each day moving forward, keep us abiding in your love and we'll be safe there.
Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's always in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.